Hello then and welcome back everybody to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast and coming up on this month's show our featured book is Mark Bright's biography which tells of his journey from foster care to Premier League football player and Mark is my guest. Now, this isn't your uh, usual rags to riches tale as we go into quite some detail about his early life being moved from one foster home to another, the breakup of his family, the prominence of racism in daily life and his ultimate rise to becoming a Premier League football player and, of course, forming one half of that great striking partnership alongside Ian Wright. As well as that, we will round up all of the bestsellers from the UK and the USA. And I'll also be talking to Derek Hammond, the author who, along with his partner, Gary Silk, have put together this gloriously nostalgic book of football fan memorabilia called The Got Not Got Football Gift Book. And if you've uh, great memories of growing up around Sabutio and Super Striker, Orange Wembley Trophy footballs and football and soccer monthly magazines, then uh, this is a real must for you for Christmas. Uh, we'll be talking to him later about that book. But first, it's Mark Wright. Okay, so the one thing that stood out for me when I read this book is that you never used any of what life gave you as an excuse. In fact, it was the opposite, really. What stands out from your child is, is that you took every piece of, if you want to call it misfortune or, or bad luck, and you turned it into a motivation to succeed, literally, from that day that you came back home you know, from the wedding to find the note from your mother waiting for your father saying she couldn't cope and she had to go. Now, you were only two at the time, uh, but yeah. still old enough to know that you know your mother wasn't there anymore. What What are your earliest uh, memories of that, and and how did you how did you cope with the situation? Um, well, <clears throat> the reason we know we're, all, we're quite clear on all the information is um, my brother and myself sent to the social services for our records um, under the Information and Freedom Act. You can you can you can get your records, so everything's logged in there, dates, everything, what happened. And I can't remember that at two and a half years of age. My brother can't remember it. Um, I can remember being in a house with big sash windows and the smell of cooking and things like that. My sister's filled us in on a little bit because she's two years older. So it, I don't remember any of that, but I read through the notes and that's where we get the information from. My earliest recollection, recollection of, of childhood really has been with Nana, Nana Clark who was our real nan, uh, yeah. our mum's mum. She tried to get the family back together by getting us out of care and bringing us close by in Abbey Alton in Stoke to where our mum lived. So that that was my first recollection of, of just be, having great fun. I can't really remember the children's home, you know, because we don't know how long we were there for a period. But you, you, moved in with, you moved in with Helena, didn't you? That was my second foster yeah. parent. So our first one was our real grand. The second one was uh, Nana Parton. So Helena, yeah, Helena Parton, who was in her 50s. She had two daughters. They were growing up. They, they eventually got married and left. We were there for about five years, and then we were too much for her. And she reluctantly had to give us up. And um, we then went back to the home and then got fostered out to the Davises, Gran and Grandad Davis, that's, which is where we stayed until we... This is Bob and Irene. They had an amazing story as well because they'd fostered 
over 50 children um, before before you uh, arrived there. So we would come home from school, Tim. So, you know, vulnerable children. Yeah. You know, parents have an argument. You know, dad maybe abuses the mum or something. So they take the, the, the social services, take the kids away. So they make, they make sure they're safe. And what, you would ha- what we would have is we'd come home from school and there was a pair of twins there. And we would go, huh? And they would say, yeah, they're staying with us for a few days. So we never really questioned it, but we got attached to the twins who were there for, I, I think, a couple of weeks. And then we came home from school and they were gone. And, and that was it. And we said, oh, where they, oh, they're about to go back to the mum now. And that was it. So you never see them again. Um, and and she, she did short-term foster. So I, I think it's in the region of around about 50. And we, there were several come and go when we were there. So it, she, had, she, had, she had short-term and then she had a, a, a kid called Carl Wright which is amazing, really, um, who was already there. And then Philip and Mark Bright. Um, so Carl was with us all through uh, our fostering at Nana, Nana Davis's. The other thing here is it, it's not an ordinary situation because this is the, the late 60s. And these are white parents with two yes. black children. Yes. Now, what doesn't come across in the book is the way the way that you write and the way that you tell the story is it's just an ordinary story to children with very nice parents who teach us you know right and wrong be polite to people or anything else there was never anything uh, made about the fact that you know you were two black children with white parents i mean were you aware that that was different it was rare tim it was rare we we you know people used to stare in the street and maybe curiosity because you're thinking you know the late 50s and early 60s is when the migration was happening and um, my dad came over from the Gambia West Africa and um, he had several children and obviously you're different you understand you're different you know you can see people want to touch your hair and touch your skin and you know it's it's it, at that stage it, you know I, I kind of I understand it now but you know, back then it used to annoy you how people say, can I touch your hair and touch your hair? Because you're different. It's the first time I've seen a black person probably without being without it being on the TV. But we had, we obviously moved to that area and we went to a school called Dove Bank Primary School. So we'd only been there obviously a few days or so. And, you know, we, we joined the school. They, they put me in my brother's year, which was a year ahead. So we could stay together and be comfortable until we settled in the school. And then we just had this terrible experience of when we left to go home, they were all all the kids from the school were waiting for us to throw stones and sticks at us. Yeah, you had to get to to, the lollipop lady. We had to get to the lollipop lady. It was like Mm. 50, 70 yards out of the alley. So so we'd be safe because they wouldn't dare do it to her. And she saw something going on. She told our foster mum who marched up to the school the next morning, addressed the, the, the headmaster, was furious. Headmaster sat us on stools on the on the stage during um, um, uh, assembly, and then just said, my, "My grand said he said that right, there's things going on at this school that are not acceptable, and you all know what I'm talking about. These two children are not being treated the same. It stops today. Do you hear me? It stops today. So she said she was sat there with us, and we were cringing, and I can I can be- vaguely remember thinking, wow, we're going to be so unpopular now." Now we've now we've now we've grasped on everybody sort of thing, and um, it stopped. It virtually stopped. To, to my grand said, and, and my, recoll- my recollection of it was, it stopped. Um, no more holding hands and running down to the to the lollipop lady, 
football broke down barriers, Tim, as you know, sport breaks down mm. barriers. When everyone saw how, how good I was at football, they all wanted me on their team. And I just think, I think it made my life easier just being good at sport. When you first turned up at that school, the, the headmaster actually brought you in and sat you on stools on the stage to introduce you. And it was almost a, you know, a highlight. Here we have two different... Um... Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you could, I, th I think what he was trying to do is say, right, there's two newcomers. Let's accept them in the in, into the school. And, you know, hopefully everything will be okay. But, you know, you're, you're different. And, and they're different. And, you know, who would teach a kid at that stage about prejudice um, or, or racism? You know, mm. You're just, it's because you're different. But there again, there was always a kid there who had glasses, a kid with ginger hair, a kid who was yeah, yeah. on the large side, you know, a skinny kid. And everyone had nicknames and everything. So a lot of it was normal, Tim, but a lot of it was was unnormal. And it was, um, you know, walking down the street. I mean, one report said um, the Davises are not ashamed to walk down the street with their Piccaninis. In fact, they're quite proud. And, you know, when you read that, I had to Google Piccaninis. And obviously Boris Johnson's name came up the door. And wow, is this how they wrote in those days? You know, educated guys writing in ink, lovely writing yeah, yeah. on your on your on your records, your social service records. So it was there. I suppose they never thought in at any stage that we'd ever get to see it. When you went to secondary school, it was a little different because you found on pretty much day one that you had a couple of people looking out for you. Yeah, yeah, the Franklins. <clears throat> the Franklins were um, um, probably the hardest kids in the school. And my gran had looked after Neil Franklin, and um, he kind of just made it known that these you can't touch these guys. So he's kind of like caught punched to start going around and causing <laughs> trouble. You know, really like the, the hardest guy in the school was looking after us. Um, but then he left. He was like, he was coming to the end. He was like um, six, former, um, eight, 16 years of age. So he was due to leave. So like our, our sort of like our, our freedom to do what we want card was taken away from us. But he, he just, you know, made sure that we were okay. Um, we were integrated into a big schools, seven, 800 pupils, uh, Mary Hill Comprehensive, it was called then. And, um, but by that stage, I, you, you were more, I was more confident Tim, I was more confident in myself, and you, you got you. But there, in that school, Tim, there was there was another another family called the Browns that they were they were of mixed race, and then an Asian family, uh, either Indian or Pakistan, I can't remember. And that was it in the school. So there was the the. I mean, I mean, it was just tough. It was just tough. It was what else can you say? It was the early the late sixties, early seventies, and you know, the only Racism. people on the TV. Yeah, it, it, you talk about being more vivid, uh, the racism, because on, on television you had things like Love Thy Neighbour, Till oh, Death Us Do Part. I hated them things, Tim. But what, the I one that did surprise things. me was when you mentioned Lenny Henry, and, Lenny and you Henry. said that he made your lives misery because you felt like he was well, basically taking the piss out of black people with his jokes. Yeah, 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 I, I, I mean... You know, I, I'm kind of, I think I've, I've met him once, something like that. I think he was a good friend of Garth Crooks's and I think I was in his company once and I kind of didn't want to be two-faced and, and, you know, say how great I thought he was, blah, 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 blah. When, you know, when, I mean, how much older than us must he be? But, you know, he, you know, it was just, I just felt like he didn't help our cause. Um, you know, like he brought into the narrative and, and, 
and he, he took the mickey out of himself and listen yeah you have to do what you have to do if you you know to, to to make a living or whatever but he didn't make he didn't make my life any easier yeah yeah you know it was um yeah love thy neighbor i mean i mean upstairs downstairs was it no not upstairs not it was um oh there was a two. couple um what's it alf garnet till death is um, depart till death is depart was it yeah I yeah mean, yeah yeah, you know, any any show with a black person and he used to get stick and everything and everyone should come to school and just repeat what they see on the television. And yeah, it just it was a source of sort of like annoyance really. Yeah, your feelings towards your your parents that says you you and your brother differed a, a little bit. And I was thinking about the uh, the t you used to get birthday cards from your, your mother every year. Your father drifted away uh, pretty much from from your life, and he, he used to get the five pound in the card and he used to throw it on the fire with the five pound. Yeah, my brother did. Yeah, he was. Um... He, he just obviously was a year older, understood a little bit more, and he just, the card would come, he would open the card, he'd read the card, the money would drop out, which was a lot of money then. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. He would, he would tear the card and tear the envelope and put them and screw the money and throw it onto the fire, because we had open fires and we had coal fires in the morning before he went to school, whatever, and I would look at him and and, and my, grandma, my grandma, foster grandma, just, wouldn't say she'd just say leave it I, I tried to obviously once i think tried to get the fiver out the fire <laughs> you know that kind of, and, and then when mine came he said to me put it onto the put, tear it up and put it on the fire to which i didn't see i did not see the logic behind that thing at all yeah so i'd tear the card up but keep the fiver but halfway there were good times just uh, coming up around the court because you got recommended to Port Vale. Uh, you had to travel there a night per week and you, with the aim of getting an apprenticeship, which meant of you course, would yeah. play, plus do things like paint the stands, clean, polish yeah, the boots. Apprenticeship, yeah, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't happen today? It, no, it, no, they don't do that today. I mean, that, I mean, it's so different. I mean, we take them in now at eight years of age. and we start Pay them a million. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, here you go. Um, you travelled yeah, for the county so, as well, didn't you? So so we had the, uh, Mr Harvey and Mr Heath were our PE teachers, and when the, when the county trials came, they sent two or three of us, I think um, Seth White, myself, maybe Mark Oates, Richard Castle probably, and and then none of us got selected. And I think it was Mr Mr Heath who was like, he couldn't believe it, so I think he phoned up whoever was in charge, it was a school from, I think, maybe the Peters from Brown Hills, which is a rival school, really. And he said, you haven't selected any of our players. And he said, no, they didn't They didn't trial very well or whatever. And he said, I've sent you like three or four of our best players. They're worthy of being... So anyway, he said that he spoke with him and he, and he said that we didn't trial very well, we didn't play very well. I said, yeah, but they played me on the wing. And it, so it was a blah, blah, blah situation. So yeah. the people who got into that... Right, so when I, when I went to training on like the, the Thursday evening or something at Port Vale, and Mark Chamberlain said to me, this is Alex Oxley Chamberlain's dad, <laughs> he said, how come you, how come you, um, you didn't get to the, 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 the get-together, the county get-together? So they had trials. He didn't go to the trials, obviously, because Mark Chamberlain, he's always going to be in the team. And then he said, how come you didn't come to the get-together? I said, no, but they didn't select me. He said, why? I said, I don't know. So I, I don't know why, Tim, and I can't, I can't allude to... Racism or whatever, yeah, I yeah. didn't get selected. But I use that like like Michael Jordan, who got left out of his high school team, 
I didn't know that story at the time or anything like that, but I use it as, do you know what? If you don't think I'm good enough, I'm going to show you. I'm going to embarrass you because out of that county team, Mark Chamberlain and me, the only two went on to be professional footballers and he yeah. had the so-called pick of the county. So I never played for my county, but I played in the FA Cup final and the League Cup final and the Premier League and scored goals at the highest level. So, you know, don't don't take no as an answer. If you're, if you're a young player out there and somebody says, I don't think you're good enough, not, not being good enough for one club or team doesn't necessarily mean you won't be good enough for another. You did get some recognition, though, didn't you, off of one of the, the greatest coaches that these lands have ever produced after playing against his team? I'm talking about Brian Clough. Yeah, he, we, we, um, we played in the under-18s, I think it was, on a Saturday morning at, like, the training ground. And we ended up beating the Forest team. And, like, we were ragbag and bobtail from, from Port Vale, you know, white tops weren't quite white and we were sort of all over the place and he said to the um the coach to neil barrett who, um, who's, who's passed away now he said to him right what are you doing go down to the county ground i'll put some sandwiches on for you and we sat in the places of where the apprentices um sit which was like behind the dugout watching nottingham forest play in the afternoon in, in like what is now the premier league so he kind of kicked his home kids out and put all us in and um, and treated us to a day at uh, at, the, at the city ground. Amazing! That, at the end of that that year, you didn't get the apprenticeship with Port Vale, and you, you had to go out and find a job. Uh, your yeah. brother your brother had moved out the the house. I mean, it's again, it's another time of major transition uh, in your life, uh, and so it was yeah, off to work for the hydraulics but, factory. It was, yeah. I was um, I was looking around for work and and. Um, went down to the job centre and, you know, and, you know, and I, I just, I, I was in a little bit of shock because I didn't get the apprenticeship where I thought I was getting. Um, and then I said, right, so I've got to do it another way. So Leak Town, Kate and Calling, a guy called Alan Vickers was the coach. And he said to me, listen, come and play for me. I was a striker as well. I'll get you back into football. And then I found a job at uh, Staffordshire Hydraulic Services. We made, used to make parts for oil rigs and, um, divers going under the sea and connecting the the pipes together. They have to be connected at the same pressure. So we 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 created these tools to to do that to fix these pipes together. And um, and I, I just didn't give up hope. I didn't I didn't stop dreaming. There was a guy who lived on my estate just down the road, uh, Barry McGregor, and he was really good at cross country. And I thought I struggled in games a little bit. So I asked him, and he helped me. I might used to go running with him in the evening, and he used to push me all the time. Come on, come on. Stay with me, stay with me. And and he improved my stamina, improving my stamina helped my game. I carried on training. I practiced on my own. And um, I had an apprenticeship. So I was at college full time for the first year. And the, 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 the guy who was in charge of the games at the college was a former Stoke player. And so he used to allow me to, you know, take some time off and go to the, use the gym for skills and, and touch and things like that. So I, I kind of, it was a difficult route, but I was still determined to, to do it. So I was playing part-time for Leak Town. And, and then I got invited to play back at Port Vale. I was still serving my apprenticeship. So I'd finished at full-time at college. I was back into the, in the engineering factory and I was doing sort of like training after work. So I was at work at six, finish at three, catch a bus to Burslem. And then John, John Rudge was waiting for me. And a couple of young players at the time called one was called Robbie Earl and the other one was called Andy Shankland. 
So, um, so they would wait for me. We'd all go in the gym and have like head tennis, touch competitions, little chest and volleys, all things to bring me up to speed. And then at the end of that year, they offered me a full-time contract when I'd passed mm. my... John McGraw, who was, was the manager there, who signed me, who said, if you pass your qualifications to be an engineer, you've got something to fall back on. I'll offer you a contract. But if you don't pass your qualifications, I'm not offering you a contract. So the motivation was I had to pass my qualifications to be a hydraulic engineer to get an opportunity to play football. It's incredible, really. John Rudge played a big, a big part. You mentioned that time that you had with him. There was one particular game, though, that you played, which left you so totally disheartened from what I can gather from it. But yeah, you, yeah. you thought, I, I can't do this. I'm going to give it up. It was yeah. against Bradford City. Uh, and you were up against Bradford Roy McFarlane. The Central League, as a, a player called Roy McFarlane. And Roy McFarlane had played for Derby, captain Derby to the championship in what is now the Premier League. He'd captain England. He's about, he was about 35, 36 years of age. And I was like 19, sort of like 19-ish, something like that. And I saw his name on the team sheet. And obviously, I was very aware of him. And I thought, right, this is going to be a really good test for me. The manager, the, the John Rudge, went up to watch the game as well. And he said to me, you know, be a good test for you tonight, Brighty. You know, this is a very experienced player. And I thought, he's 35, 36. He won't want to run around. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run him in channels. I'm just going to make runs for the sake of it. And then I'm going to, you know, try and tire him out. And and he was just one step ahead in everything that I did. I came off the pitch. We, we, we got, we got, we got the, the debrief. We had a shower. I was a bit down. I got on the coach to come back. And I was just sitting on my own. And then I just went to see John Rudge, who was sitting down the front. And I said, you know what, John? I'm not sure I've got what it takes. If Roy McFarlane can mark me out the game, and he's 36 and I'm and I'm 19, I'm I don't think I've got I don't think I've got what it takes. At the end of the game, Roy McFarlane said to me, "If a, if a, if I came short, he was he was next to me, poked the ball away. If I ran in the channel, he bumped me and stopped me getting up to speed. He and he anticipated everything. He jumped early. He was beating me. In the, he did everything to me. He marked me out the game. Yeah, I he, I was in his pocket. That's what the kids are saying now. So at the end of the game, he." he, he came up to me, I tried everything, I, I tried everything. And at the end he came up to me, he goes, well done, you're stuck at it, well done. You know, good, good luck, see you later. And shook my hand and I thought, wow, kind of like it, that's a bit patronizing. And then John Rudge said to me, Mark, Roy McFarlane's played for England. He's captain Derby County to the championship. Roy McFarlane's one of the greatest defenders this country's seen. He's more, better people than you out of the game. Don't worry about it. That's part of your progress, mate. It's part of your learning. And I came home and I told my brother, and my brother virtually said the same thing, you can't judge yourself on one person. And especially as like he was such a great as well. But I did, I just thought, right, if I'm judging myself against the, the best, this guy's been the best, but he's on his way down, I should be able to get the better of him, and I couldn't. And it was one of those moments in everybody's career, you'll all have them, we'll all have them, where you doubt yourself. There, was, there were family um, moments that popped up as well, at this time you know you're playing football you're beginning to progress you've got your job and then things happen like you go out with your brother you've just moved into the uh, wonderfully named icebox flat icebox. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're in a nightclub somebody taps your brother on your shoulder and says i think i'm your sister oh, yeah yeah it was marie 
our oldest sister, she we, we kind of became disengaged. We, we, we used to go when we were small and swap Christmas presents and say hi um, because we were kind of robbed of the brother-sister relationship growing up because we, we weren't exposed to each other. We didn't live together. We lived together for a short period, which we really enjoyed with our Nana Clark. But then after that, we were back in the home and they and um, they'd had another child, Maureen, who was our youngest. And then, um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a nightclub called The Place. And I think I think I was playing football on the Saturday. So I was I was at home, I was in bed, and my brother on the Friday night came home like he used to he used to go out with his mates for a couple of scoops, and he came home and he said, "I bumped into Marie tonight," and I said, "No way." He said, "Yeah," he said, "We've got to get back in touch," um, and that brought us back together, sort of in our team. So I I think we worked out. I think I think was it a seven or eight year spell where we. We almost went without contact. I think, I think I, I think I worked it out. I think it was about seven or eight years. So we just lost touch with the girls, um, and quite a shame that we really once we once we were in touch, we shouldn't really have lost touch, but we did. And then we all kind of re-engaged. We all kind of met up and started to be part of each other's lives again. Brilliant. Now that deal that you got offered, you you'd done your apprenticeship, you had passed it. You're looking forward to the season. How much of a knockback was it to go into the office, sit down, see them produce you a, a contract, and it was worth less than you were on when you were working in the factory? <laughs> Tim, John McGraw was a brilliant character. The, the younger people won't know, but you know he was a tough centre half for Southampton, I think, in Newcastle. And um, he said to he said to me, "They only got past me once, Bradley. I used to put them in the stand." I mean, he said, he said his wife came to watch him play once and she said, you don't dribble like Georgie Best. <laughs> he, he was such a good coach. So he said to me, he, he, he put his hand on top of the contract and he looked at me and said, son, I don't, I don't sign bad players. In three years, I expect you to be in the Premier League. So he said Division One because that's what it was, but that was what he was saying to me. In three years, you'll be. In, I expect you to be in the Premier League. And he moved his hand off the contract and turned it. He goes, sign that at the bottom, son. And I just, I looked at it with the pen in my hand and I went, oh, gaffer. I mean, like I, I'm, earning, I'm earning more than that now. You said that, son, put your pen, put that pen to paper. I think, was it 90 pounds? Was it 80 pounds or 90? And at 90 pounds. And then he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If I sell a player before Christmas, I'll give you another 10 pounds. But it still, it still left me like £40 short from where, what I was earning at the hydraulics factory. And he, he virtually said to me, if you trust me, sign it. You know, or if you, want to, if you want to be a professional, you've got to sign it. So I kind of had to sign it. I just had to sign There was no agent, so there was none of that. So I had to sign it. Then I went to told my brother that I'd taken a pay cut to be a professional footballer. And my brother <laughs> had to support because we split everything. We split the rent, the food. You know, anything we had to buy for the flat, uh, the Calagas, you know, bottle that we had to keep replacing. So my brother had to virtually do like a 70-30 and support me, you know, because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really afford anything. And, and, and he said, I believe in you. I, you can do it. I know you can do it. So, so he subsidised me, really. Um, he, didn't he come yeah, out so with I, the, the, the classic coach quote? using his position of power and influence. Son, this isn't about money, it's about opportunity. <laughs> well, no, yeah, because obviously you talk about money, so you go, Gaffer, but 
I'm learning more than that at the Alintronics factory. He goes, son, son, listen, look at me, right? Do you trust me? This isn't about money. This is about opportunity. <laughs> this is about you playing professional football for a living. You know, this is about what I, I'm, I'm saying to you, I believe in you, right? And I'm saying in three years' time, you won't be worried about money. You'll be in the, you'll be in the, the top flight. So you kind of get you kind of get swayed, and you know you're thinking, right? I've got I've got I've, I've, I trust him, but so much can go wrong. But the way he's saying it to me, he expects me to get to the top in three years. So I thought, right, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. So then, when when you tell your mates like that, they went, yeah, but he's got to pay you more than that. <laughs> and I said, oh, do you know what? I, I, my brother said he'll support me a little bit. So I, I you know, I mean, I, I live walking distance from the training from the from the ground. So. I used to walk there in 10, 15 minutes. I didn't need a car or anything. I would be the first one in, get changed, go into the gym in the morning, like say, because I was used to being at work at six. So I'd wake up really early. And when I'd get there, there was hardly anybody there. So I used to get some kit, go around into the gym and do some heading, heading off the wall, some volleying, some left foot, some right foot, you know, some turning and shooting. And then I'd come back about, say, nine o'clock or something. Everyone go, look at me, I'd be soaking. I'd go, where have you been? I've been in the gym. What for? I don't know. Just I got up there early, so right, take you, you, right, stop. You know, take your time. You, you, you've got trained now. I have to go and get changed, put some fresh kit on. But John Rudge loved it. He loved it because you know it showed that I was willing to um, to put myself out and, and and be first and be first in the running. You know? Rudge took over as well because Mc- yeah, yeah. John McGraw got the sack, so John took over. So um, you know, and then I, I had to. I think I had to get 10 goals to get a thousand pound bonus. And you and had think, four. Um, yeah. And then I, I just had this unbelievable run at the end of the season. That was four and, in um, April, by the way. By the, so yeah. you've got six was, in the but, remainder yeah. of the season. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't, I think might've been seven or eight games. And I think Lincoln was the one where I scored away from home. Eamon O'Keefe came off. I think he was injured. And, um, and he, he knew he knew I was on a goal bonus and he, he came off and as I was coming in he goes, Go on mate, get yourself a couple of goals. And um, I think that's where I got the goal, what got me the thousand pounds, which was obviously still I was still behind in terms of my, my salary, but, um, but then Vale got so. Vale got relegated, didn't they? At the end of that season. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we went down. We got promoted the year before when I joined, then got relegated the year that the when when I left. But and, you had the big, um, I, the big moment was to come though, wasn't it? Because Gordon Milne over at Leicester was in for you. Yeah, he, they, what I did is I wrote to a load of clubs saying my contract's up. Are you interested? Paul Bell were desperately trying to get me to sign a deal then. And um, I had a phone call to, to, just to say, Gordon Milne's interested in meeting you and having a chat to you. And then I went over and I, and, um, I remember driving over. I can remember it was a really sunny day. I went to Hinkley to his house. Um, this beautiful house, chatted to me, had a good, and then there's a guy called Dave Richardson who was the uh, reserve team coach and he was the one who gave me some advice when we played in the reserves against Port Vale. He said, stop stop trying to kick everybody and elbow everybody and play the game. You've got loads of good attributes, you can you can make a good living. But you, all you're interested in is hurting everybody because all, all my players are just always thinking, oh God, here he goes. And so um, he was the one that sort of got in touch with me and said, look, Oh, Gaffer wants to have a chat to you. So he took me to the ground, showed me around, and he said, right, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think about it, and then give me a call. And I said, I want, I said I've made my mind up, I want to come. This is where I want to go. Gary Lineker, Alan Smith, Steve Linex, Martin O'Neill, um, 
Mark Wallington, Paul Ramsey, um, bloody, um, Andy Peake. I mean, they had a good team. They had a really good team. So I, he goes, right, so sleep on it and then let me know. So when I got home, John Rudge came up to my house and knocked on the door. And he said, right, I've got to ask you, can you sign this, will you sign this deal? Blah, 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 blah. I said, no, John, I, I, I've made my mind up. I'm, I'm going to leave. And um, he said, right, Howard Wilkinson wants to speak to you at Sheffield Wednesday. I said, I've made my mind up. I'm going to Leicester. And he said, right, in football, it's polite to go and speak to those clubs that want to sign you. It just holds you in good stead for the future. And he said, if, he said, if I were you, I'd go across and speak to Howard Wilkinson. And I said, OK. So I phoned Howard Wilkinson and he said, son, I'll see you tomorrow, 10 o'clock. So I drove over early. I was there about nine. And then about half nine, I got to the stadium. I thought, oh, I might as well. So I knocked, so I went into the secretary's office and I said, I've come to see the manager. The guy called Stuart Eustace. Eustace. Yeah, Eustace. Mm. Yeah, so he's assistant, right? So, bearing in mind, I'd only ever been to talks the day before to Leicester. So he said to me, "How are you doing, son?" I said, "Yeah, good." He goes, um, "Do you think you're quick?" I said, "Yeah, I'm all right." He said, "You got a good touch." Yeah, yeah. Can you use both feet? Yeah. Can you head? Yeah. Yeah. Come with me. Took me to the to the to the kit manager. Got me some kit. What size boots you take? I think it might have been Imri Verardi's boots. It might have been. So, gave me a pair of boots, drove up to the training ground. The kids were at the training ground painting fences, your fences. <laughs> he, put, he, he, took, he got a bag of balls out the back of the car, said to me, run around and get warmed up. Now, imagine this, right? I'm thinking, this must be, obviously, different clubs do it differently. So, I ran around, had a little warm-up. The kids started to cross balls from the left and right. I started to head them in, volleys, sprints. So, we did about 20 minutes. And um, so, he said to me, oh, good stuff, good stuff. So we came back in the car to the, to the ground. I went and had a shower. And then Matt, the manager was seeing Mal Sterling over a new contract. So anyway, Mal Sterling left. He didn't know why I was. He just nodded. And then the manager went, all right, son, come on in. And when I come in, he goes, you okay? I said, yeah. He goes, you're sweating. I goes, yeah. I've just been doing the other part of the, um, <laughs> the, the, the talks. And that, he went, what do you mean, the other part? I said, oh, the coach took me up to the training ground and crossed some balls for me and did some heading and shooting and sprinting against the, the kids. He went, who did? I said, the guy who was outside with me. He said, wait till you. So he obviously went outside and said, what on earth are you doing? You know, he came back and he goes, I'm sorry about that. I was sweating. It was dripping off me. I had, a, I had like a, a napkin and a cup of tea. So we had a good chat, walked around the stadium. And he just said to me, he said, um, so I'm not going to ask you anything. I'm not going to talk about money. Because I don't want to talk about money. I want you to say to me, I want to come here. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to let you sleep on it. Don't tell me now. Can you call me tomorrow at nine o'clock and tell me what, what your decision is? I said, yes. So he said, thanks for coming over. Tried to give me some money for my petrol. And that. I said, no, Leon, it's my honour. Thank you very much. And then, then I went back and said to my brother, I've got, to, I've got a phone in tomorrow and tell him I don't want to go there. He said, yeah, but you've got to do this. This is what you've got to do. And I said, I, said, I, I liked it. But I've made my mind up. I, I promised Gordon Mill and I don't want to go back on my word. So um, I phoned um, Howard the next day at like nine o'clock. Secretary put me through. He goes, morning, son. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good, good, good. Have you had a sleep? Have you had a think about it? Yes, I have. Yeah, tell me what you're thinking. I said, Mr. Wilkinson, I promised Gordon Mill at Leicester that I was going to sign for them. They, they'd been in touch with me for, for longer. And I've been down a couple of times. And I promised him I'd sign from it. I don't want to go back on my word. I, re I was really impressed with the stadium and everything. 
but I'm 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 sticking to my word. I'm going to to Leicester. He said, "Do you know what, son? Thanks for your honesty. Thank you for calling me back and being prompt on time. Thank you for coming up yesterday. You never know what football's like." He, he said, "I might end up signing you sometime in the future. Good luck with your career, son. Thank you." I said, "Oh, thank you very much." And I, I put the phone down, going, "Oh my God, thank God for that." And um, little did you know, I end up going to Hillsborough anyway. I'm sitting next to him at dinners. You know, when we have the dinners and, and, yeah, and yeah. talking about the, the, the nostalgia and how I nearly signed but didn't, but ended up going there anyway. You get you go to Leicester and uh, you're on £300 a week, 150 appearance money, and then you get this uh, £10,000 signing on fee. I mean, wh- I mean how, did you, how did you feel? I mean, did you do anything uh, oh, completely outrageous? Yeah. Go out and buy a car or what did you do? Because you like I a would. car. <laughs> Oh my God! I've, so I've signed. There's no agents. There's nothing. You you go across there. Everything's printed out. What he promised you. Da, 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 da. The, the secretary explains to you. This is this. This is a ten thousand pound offer. You'll get three thousand three hundred pounds in three different installments. On th- you know once a year. And I, obviously, I've never had any money because you you don't have a bank account because we had had a bank account, but it was like a building society thing. Because yeah, with got, the book. We got paid. <laughs> we got paid cash. We had an envelope. You know, Port Vale just got an envelope at the end of every week. So, and if the gold bonus was in there or what was in there, it was in there. So, um, so yeah, I stopped on the way back on this country road and I got the phone and I phoned my brother's work and um, I just said, it's Phil then. They said, yeah, they got him out there. He was in the workshop and he said, he said, how did it go? I said, I've signed. He goes, oh, well done to Phil. £300 a week, £150 appearance. And ten thousand pounds. He goes, no way. I said, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. So we cried on the phone. I put the phone down and I drove. And I, 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 honest to God, was driving along, thinking, this is it. I've three hundred pound a week, ten thousand pounds signing on, hundred and fifty pound appearance. I've I've cracked it. I've absolutely cracked it. This is it now. If I can get, if I can score some goals, I might get a better deal. I might go to 500 or 600 pound a week. Um, you've got to remember our rent then was like 20 pound and uh, 20 pound a week, 80 pound a month. So I just thought that you no, know, I'll be able to help my brother and everything. And so when I, so yes, you, when I when I got there, I asked them. They said to me, "What we'll do is we'll supply you with a car for um, for the first season, and then you know when you're settled and everything, you can get yourself a car." So I've got a sponsored car as well, like a Volvo. So during that period, one of the guys who was a big fan of the club, he he, he ran a, a like a, a Vauxhall garage, and he said, "Right, I'm going to do all, do all these cars at discounted prices." And I phoned my brother. He said, "Take it, take the car," because he worked in, in the car industry. And I had a I had a um, an Opal Manta, I think it was, like a white one <laughs> with a fairing on the back and like like big wide wheels and everything. I honestly, Tim, I thought this is it. I've arrived. I've arrived. Beautiful white car, and like first one in our family to have a new car. Brilliant! It's brilliant. Now you you are in. Uh, so you moved into Leicester City. You got on well with Gary Lineker. You're in the first team. You're banging in loads of goals for the reserves. Twenty eight goals, I think it was there. Uh, yeah. Then Lineker moves to Everton. You're in the first team, and the first game of the season is against Everton of Filbert Street. You couldn't you couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up that you know the the, the son of Everton, the son of um, Leicester, um, Mr. Walker's Chris himself, 
goes to Everton. Everybody agrees it's a great fee, £800,000. The fixtures come out and Leicester's first game is Everton at home. So everybody was excited. Gary comes back, gets booed by the crowd and they're singing, what a waste of money. I scored two <laughs> goals um, and we win 3-1. Gary doesn't score. And like, obviously, at the end of the game, you sort of go across and hug each other and everything. And he said, well done, Bright. Today was your day. And I said, yeah, I have two goals ahead of you already. <laughs> he, he reminded me later in the season, he was on 40 goals and I was on six. So um, it, went, it started so well for me. It started so well. I'd spent a year as his understudy. Gary left and it was my chance with Alan Smith to play alongside Smudge. And um, yeah, it, 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 what, what, what was ended up being a good start ended up being a nightmare for me. Just went from bad to worse. The harder I tried, the worse it became. Started to get abuse from the crowd, and then turned a bit of racial abuse um, in and out of the team. The managers, the, I went to see Gordon Mill, and he said, "Son, I, listen, I believe in you. You can do this. I didn't sign you for any other reason, but I know you can do it. You got to work hard." stick at it, get the goals, turn it around. Everybody will get some abuse from the fans at some stage. So he, he kept telling me to keep working hard, which is what I did. But as you know, sometimes Tim, it just doesn't work at a club. Everybody put their hands, just say, do you know what? Hold, hold my hands up. He's worked his hardest. It hasn't clicked for him. The team doesn't suit him. The style doesn't suit him. He needs to move. And, and, and that's what happened to me. You were actually diagnosed during that time with depression. Do you know when you say diagnosed him? So I went. Oh well, I couldn't yeah. sleep. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't sleep. I was sitting up. I had this hanging basket in the window overlooking a park, and it was like four o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting in the basket, waiting, waiting to feel sleepy to go asleep. But I was anxious. I had anxiety. I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't understand how when you put all this hard work in on the training ground, it doesn't transfer itself to the first team pitch, Filbert Street, the stadium. It wouldn't work for me. It didn't work. So I went to see the club doctor and, um, and I said, Doc, I explained to him what it was and I can't sleep. Can I get some sleeping tablets? So the doc said to me, right, he got this little flip chart out of his drawer and he, he goes, right, read that first one, answer it. Second one, third, fourth, fifth. The last one he turned over was, you're suffering from depression. And I said, oh, come on, Doc, come on, don't be silly. Don't, don't, it's, I'm not depressed. I just, I can't sleep because I'm just worried about not scoring and things like that. And he said, Mark, this is it's the start. So I'm not giving you any sleeping tablets. You've got to come home from training. If you feel like a little nap, have a nap. If not, go to bed early. You'll, when you're tired, you'll go to sleep. I said, I don't. This was going on for like a lot, a long time. The reason I don't think I got any worse, Tim, is because I think I my the club had decided to sell me that they didn't think I was I was there to pay thirty three thousand thirty three thousand thirty three thousand a hundred over three years so they didn't and it was over twenty five games fifty games seventy five games something like that so they had done forty something games on and off coming on as a sub they didn't think I was worth it so they wanted to try and get me out during that time I spoke to Steve Koppel and decided to move to Crystal Palace and I think that was at the stage where I was at my worst with the club, not sleeping and things. And then from nowhere, everything fell into place. Football fell into yeah. place. Sleep patterns came back. I was happy. The weight had been lifted. So I think that, that, that moving to Palace saved me from slipping any further. Barry Siddle. 
I was going to say, Barry Siddle gave you some great uh, advice at the time. Doesn't matter where you're playing, uh, there's always going to be somebody out there potentially watching you. And that moved to Palace, I think. So you found out a couple of years uh, after that, Ron Nodes um, had seen you playing, hadn't he? Yeah. So Barry Siddle was a goalkeeper. He was was a big hero at Blackpool. He came to Port Vale. He's a great pro. And he used to come at one time we were playing away at Blackpool and he went, he went to watch the reserves play when I was at Port Vale. And he came in the change room afterwards and he, and he said something to me that just stuck with me all my career. And I tell the kids, I, I told two, two days ago, two of our young ones, you never know who's watching you in the stand. Somebody in that stand could be there, could change the course of your career. Barry Siddle said, he came to watch me. My attitude was excellent. My effort and everything was perfect. And he said, I'm telling you now, Bray, you never know who's watching you. Someone can affect your career. Well done. Keep that up. And so that's them. And, and Ron Nodes had gone on a, a Friday night to Southend to watch a Friday night game. And I was on the, I was on the bench, I think, at Port, for Port Vale against Southend. I came on as a sub for like half a game or something and ran around like a lunatic. And he made a note of my name. So Steve, when Steve Cropper was, was the manager of, of Palace and he wanted a, 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 he wanted a tall striker, a target man, someone who could lead the line, someone who could work with Ian Wright and that sort of thing. He, he, he was, Ron Nose said, do you know what? I've, I've got a programme with a, guy, a kid who was at, um, at Leicester. Um, you know, he's at Port Vale. And, and then Ron goes, oh, do you know what? He's moved to Leicester City. They looked it up. Let's go and watch him. So they sent a guy, a guy called Johnny Griffin, who's like, the, he still scouts for Palace now. He's, he's, he's got a great eye. And Johnny Griffin came back and he said to Steve, sign him. So Steve and Ron and Johnny Griffin went up to watch me in another game. And they all agreed that that's what we were looking for at Crystal Palace. So that's when I went to meet Steve. That uh, was up so at the... Lots of people, the, the uh, Watford Gap service days. Yeah. On the, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tim, can you imagine? Because Steve may be, what, 30, 31? 31 years so, of age he was. Hmm? Yeah. So he hadn't finished long. He had a bad knee injury. And I can, I was, he was my era. So I can remember, I can remember Coppel and Hill and Robson and you know, Stapleton. Gordon McQueen, all that, that. So you know, I'm, I, I, they were I, they were fresh in my memory. I could see them players. And at, when I was at Port Vale, we played in the League Cup. Once we played Man United, and 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 the next morning, Tim, I went to the ground early, like I used to, and walked down the steps, walked in between the dugouts, and just looked around the ground and thought, right, Man United were here last night. They were on this pitch, and I heard them shouting to each other and turn time, switch play, do the all the things that you pick up with the good players. And what happened is I looked in their dugout and on the floor underneath the seat, they'd left a red towel. And I picked the towel up and it was embossed beautifully with the Man United logo in the corner. And I kept that towel as like a memento is where I want to try and get. Um, and I had it for years and years and years. It used to just be in the airing cupboard. I never used to use it for anything. I just kept it because it, I just thought it was fake that I went down there in the, early in the morning and it was there. So I kept it. And it was only when, when I kind of moved house a couple of times that I, I, I remember losing it. But, um, yeah, I thought, do you know what? That's where I want to play. Somewhere like that. You know, Manchester United, it was, it was glorious. So Co- Coppola has got you, Dan. You're, you're having this chat and you're just about to uh, come down on, on a trial. And he's looking for what is it, young and angry players. And he, and he tells you yeah. that there's this guy, there's this kid. Uh, who, he's working at the moment for, for tunnel refineries in, in Greenwich. Um, and he turned down a few trials in the past, three, 
Uh, but I think he's he's going to be the most exciting thing that I've ever seen. And if you two get together and click, you'll be a headline writer's dream. And he was talking then yeah, a Watford gap about, about right and bright. Yeah, it, was, um, it, was, it, it really was. It just sounds like it's been made up. But the, that, um, on our first meeting, he just said, there's a, there's a kid I'm working with. He's the most exciting talent I've worked with. Now, he's been at Manchester United Football Club. And he said, he just needs some guidance. He's, he's all over the place at times. And I think you can help him because you've got more experience. Now, he said, we're playing next week at Nottingham Forest in a cup game. Do you want to come and watch us play and see if you see yourself as part of the team? So I went across sort of like and uh, watched them. I, I drove, I remember driving away thinking, I've seen the club I want to play for. That's, this is, that is the club I want to be at, Crystal Palace. I think they had the sash away kit on sort of thing and, and the white and I said, that's it. I could Andy Gray played up front with Ian Wright and and I and I thought, right, where am I gonna play? Because Andy Gray played all right. And then when I spoke to Coppel, he said, Andy Gray's gonna play in midfield. He doesn't know it yet, but he's gonna be I am gonna put him in midfield. He strikes the ball well. He's great he's he's got a great engine. He's he can uh, he can tackle, he can head, he can do everything. So he's gonna play in midfield, he's gonna anchor. So um uh, he, he, we, we, I went down and obviously started to work with Ian. Ian had been a plumber's mate, a builder's mate, um, uh, I mean, scaffolder, everything, everything. He'd been to three, four different clubs. All one had said no, too small, too old, not going to be good enough, da 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 da. And then Coppel gave him his break. So he'd been there just a few months at the end of the last season. And then the start of, of, of this season. So so it's about November time. I've been, yeah, it's 33 years since I joined Palace this week. So so right, he'd been there six months or so ahead of me. And he was still learning. He was still learning. He had loads to learn. But what happened is, we, we used to say, right, we're going to stay behind. And Ian Evans was a coach. And we're going to work on how we can improve. And that's how it started. We would, Ian Evans would clip balls up to me. I'd flick it right to get on the end of it. It'd come up to me, I'd chest it right, he'd come round the front and get it. We'd play one-twos around the 18-yard box. A throw into me, I'd let it go and go into right, he'd give it me, I'd give it him back. All those things we worked on. We did, people say it just clicked between us. It didn't, it didn't. We worked on everything. We made ourselves better by working together. Don't forget, we played in an era with 4-4-2. Every team had two strikers. So it was Daglish and Rush, um, you know, Cotty and McAvenny, Cascarino and Sheringham. Um, you know, you could go through any team. They had a pair, Andy Gray and Adrian E, Graham Sharp and Adrian E. You know, they, 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 every team had a combination. So we worked on ours because we wanted to be the best pair. And you had as well, when you moved into, into London, you talk about it being uh, a place that broadened your horizons, your education. You certainly mixed with more black people than ever before because there were yeah. more around there. And you felt, you yeah. said, really at home. Yeah, I just felt. Listen, we had a, we, we we were lucky. We had great um, foster parents. Our grand and granddad and everything were great, but we missed out culturally, Tim. We missed out culturally. And there was a, there's a, there was a question asked me one time when I was doing it to you. Do you th- do you think that black kids should only be fostered out to black families? Which there's you know it's a it's a question. And I I thought about it and I said, you know what, a kid deserves deserves to be loved. That's what. And love's free. And so if there's a loving foster parent out there, it doesn't matter what nationality the kid is, 
the, the kid's getting love and the kid has to grow. Later in life, you can go back and, and find out about history and your roots and trace your, trace your roots back on all these sort of things. But at the time, a kid just deserves a home and an environment where they can thrive and grow. So my grand and granddad couldn't tell me anything culturally about West Africa, you know, the slave trade, blah, 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 blah. But they just gave us good sort of morals in life mm. and, and a good education. So when I came to London, yes, I mixed with more black people. I was in black communities like Brixton, um, learning things, learning things off the other players. And then, you know, just doing a bit of discovery, buying a couple of books maybe. And um, yeah, but nightclubs and multicultural bars. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a place where I'd always liked, I'd come down to London a few times before and I'd always liked it. And somebody said to me, if you get the chance to go north or south, go south, you kind of get more recognition as well, um, which is not necessarily so, but it, it was, it's a great place to live. And I've, I've remained in London. You know, I've been, in, I've been in London longer than I've been in Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah, now tell me, did, was this really true? When you guys are out on a night out, Finnegan, Wright, you, Gray, you'd be driving across Westminster Bridge, you'd make them pull the car up, jump out and go, oh, my God, it's Big Ben. I know, it's... I know. stop the car, I said, stop the car. <laughs> and I got right to be driving, or it might have been Andy. And he said, what is it, what is it? I go, it's Big Ben. Stop, stop, stop. And he started laughing. <laughs> like, what are you on about? We were coming from south to north, we were going out. And he's at night, and I've been in London, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so, but I hadn't been around because I was based in Purley. I was in a, in a in, um, I was in, I was in Croydon for, for about four or five weeks at the hotel. Then they moved me into a club flat, which is in Purley. So I kind of hadn't ventured uptown too much. We, I was just focused on training. And then the boys said, we're going out, we're going out tonight. We'll, we'll get, 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 drive up to Brixton, then we'll all go together. So I remember Andy just coming round the corner, I was in the back of the car like that, and I went, oh my God, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. And Andy goes, what is it, what is it? I goes, it's Big Ben. And they just started laughing. I said, no, 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 I've never seen it before, I've only ever seen it on TV. Oh, shut up, right. Just carried on driving, sort of thing, like, but when, you, when you're in the North, and you see these things, you know, the House of Parliament and things like that, and you, then you see them in the flesh for the first time, because you see, you hear, you know, the news comes on, news at 10, and, you know, picture of Big Ben and the, the gongs, I've never seen it. I've been on a trip to London once, but went to Wembley. So I'd never been to central London. I've never seen the Thames. I've never seen all these things. So I bought myself, as you know, in the old days, you buy an A to Z. I bought an A to Z and used to drive from Purley to central London to find Oxford Street, Regent Street, Marble Arch, Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace, to find all these places so I knew where they were. And then on days off, I used to get the, the, the train from Purley to, to East Croydon to Victoria and from Victoria then I used to learn how to use the tube and where, how to get to you know get to Covent Garden and do some shopping and things so it was just discovery you know I was always in my 20s but I just I was discovering London and no one needs an A to Z now do they they've all got waves yeah. and, in, and on the pitch you have uh, an event with Palace which you still describe as being one of the the greatest moments ever and it was when you got to the um playoffs and won promotion first of all uh overcoming swindon, swindon. then it was blackburn rovers in the rovers. Uh, f- in the final uh one of the best nights ever team. yeah yeah home and away both both legs at the start of the playoffs when they started was home and away so we went to um swindon away we lost one nil and then we won at home two nil that was a great night a glorious night and then we went to blackburn and we were 
we, we, we were losing 2-1, which we thought was, was OK because Eddie, Eddie McGold had scored for us. And we thought, that, that we can do this, we can do it. And then they scored right at the end to make it 3-1. Coming back on the coach, and it was quite flat, quite flat for a long way. And then we got together at the back of the coach and the noise levels just went up and up and up. We said, we can beat them 3-0 easy. We can do it. We can do it. We're the one team who can beat them. And we kind of talked ourselves into, right, on the Wednesday, that, that's going to be us. We got there. Salas was being redeveloped. The roof was off. Um, the noise, the crowd. As we came out for the warm-up, it was packed. And they got behind us so well. And we, we scored the three goals. Man has got a couple of penalties, I think, right, he scored. And it just goes down. It was the first time I'd achieved something in football. You know, we'd, I'd, I'd been part of a... I've been part-time on a promotion, but I didn't play a lot. I was only played a couple of times when we got promotion at Port Vale. Then I was, I was, I was in and out, in and out, and then in at the end of the season when we got relegated. So this was the first time in my career I'd actually achieved something, and it was a promotion. So that pitch was invaded within five seconds of wrestling the whistle. We kind of got carried off. We went, got into the stand and somehow managed to get to Jonathan Pierce, who was in the middle of the stand doing Capital World Sports, and interviewed Ian and me. And he, he sent it to him. I think I've got it on tape somewhere. It was like one of those magical moments where everything came together at the right time. We'd been close the year before, and then this was year was our year. And not because of Ian and me, but because we had a good team. We had a hungry team, and it was just a great... Anyone who's there that night will say, even though we've, the club have gone on to do other things, it was just a magical moment getting Steve Coppel's plan coming coming to fruition of, of getting out of the, the championship and into the, what is now the Premier League. So it was a great you, night for us. You had a good start in the in, in the Premier League and then you went up to play Liverpool and were yeah. beaten nine nine oh, goals yeah. to nil. And uh, it was, quote Gary O'Reilly here, and he says that was the night that the team was born. That was the his words. Everyone uses that. Um, it was sink or swim time. It was it was embarrassing. We, and somebody, I had two, 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 two girlfriends who owned a, a shop, a clothes shop in Croydon, and called Apparel, and they bought me the, the, the tape for Christmas. It was VHS and them down. And I, I, remember, I remember opening it and laughing, and then put, just throwing it on the underneath the TV. And then one day, I just put it on. And the disturbing thing was, we didn't capitulate, we didn't all hide, we didn't not try, everybody was trying. That was the scary bit. Everybody in the team was chasing and running and tackling and pulling and trying to get forward. We just showed a massive naivety. When we were four or five down, Pembo's on the march forward. Midfield players are leaving their positions going forward. We were exposed. We, di we didn't know how to shut up shop and say, right, right, you're on your own. We're tucking in. We're staying narrow. They're not scoring any more goals. We were, we were honest to God trying. I watched um, Southampton earlier this season get beat by Leicester, and I thought, I've been there. I've been there. And it's embarrassing. And you, to, it's, you, 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 you didn't, I didn't want to go out the house because of people saying, oh, I thought you got beat. You know, I didn't want to go out the house. Liverpool played amazingly that night. I think it was eight different scores, was it? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, but they, they played amazing that night. But we 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 gifted them goals by just just being so open. You did but, get your own yeah. back 
by the way, um, in the semi-final <laughs> of the FA Cup. Yeah. Um, but this was after, this was after you paid a visit to this wonderful woman oh, called Olga, Olga Stringfellow. Um, the woman you who liked to hands-on and horse I've noises. Done. I've done, <laughs> I would say, over 30 interviews in just over a week for this book, right? Be TV, radio, podcast, yeah. whatever, right? I think this is an amazing story and nobody's touched on it. So Steve Koppel, I've, I've got a hamstring injury. So I missed the game and I couldn't, as, as a player, you stand with your feet together, bend down with your hands, touch your toes, and, and right, that's an indication of how tight you are or whatever. So I had this hamstring injury and it was right in the middle of my hamstring and it was stopping me from touching my toes. And when I sprinted, it was hurting. So anyway, I'd been off a little bit. So Steve pulls me into the office, Steve Koppel, and says, Right, would you have any objection to go and see like a faith healer? To which I looked at him and I said, Bob, it's not in my mind, it's in my leg. It's my <laughs> leg. It's, uh, he said, right, so if, 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 you, if you've got no objection, we'll go, and see, we'll go down and see this faith healer. Laurie McMenemy has told me about this woman who lives down in Southampton, Kevin Keegan's seen her and other people. And you've got nothing to lose. So I said, so, like you do, you do uh, uh, right. So, I don't want anybody to find out about it because it was in that era, you know. So, we, Steve and me, leave the training ground at eight o'clock in the morning. We go down, we go in, we go in the house, it's full of like artifacts from Africa and everything. It's masks and spears and all this sort of thing. And then she comes in, she's like a, a, a little old lady, a little white lady, and she's got a little maid with her who sits down and explains things to me. She says, Right, tell me what the problem is. I tell what the problem is. So, she then she sits next to me, she puts her hand knuckles down facing down on the sofa and then i sit on the palm of her hand on my hamstring and i said okay so what do i do she goes that's it just sit there i said okay so i sit there and i sit there and i sit there so i can feel my leg it feels like it's sweating it feels like it feels like the sweat's trickling down my leg so anyway she does about an hour and she goes i just need a break so she goes off and steve steve's looking at me and he said can you feel anything i said it just feels hot does feel hot, but I rolled my slip, trouser leg up and it wasn't sweating. I said, right, it's really strange. It really feels strange. So he goes, all right, just carry on. She comes back. She brings a book and gives it to Steve and says, here you go. There's some clippings in there. She puts her hand back under my leg and sits there for about another hour. So Steve's reading through these clippings. And these are all the people that she's treated and have been healed. And there's like loads of stories. So he's reading a few hours. So anyway, she said to me, okay, right, stand up. She goes, right, is there anything you can do that you can tell me if it's better or not? So I bent down. I went, oh, God, it's tight. No, it's, it, it feels the same. She goes, okay, it'll probably be better tomorrow. So anyway, she stands up, and then she puts her hand at the back of my leg, just by my buttock, and she makes this these noises like a like a horse, like, <laughs> and she's rubbing her hand down my leg. And I'm looking at Steve, and he's looking at me. And like, at this stage, I want to say to him, are you kidding me? And, and, and she says, it's okay. And then she just goes, um, so she does it about say three or four times. Steve has to hold himself. And I, and I, at this stage now, that's really done it for me. Because I think, right, this is a waste, what a waste of time. So she stops and she goes, she goes, um, I'm just, I'm just asking Popper something, whatever, right? So, so Steve goes, okay. So she says, um, uh, who are you playing tomorrow? She said, Aston Villa, I think it was, at home. 
and, and Steve goes, she goes, okay. And so she closed her eyes and Steve said, can you ask Popper whoever it is how we're going to get on? <laughs> right. And she said, oh, he says it's going to be, you're going to have a good day. So he goes, oh, great, thanks. Anyway, he gives her £50, I think it was. She said she couldn't do it for, for, for make money. She was doing it because she's, she's, she's got the, the gift. So we get in the car. Steve says, don't say anything. So we drive out the, out the street, we wave. We get to the, go around the corner, get around the corner again. We're nowhere outside. He looks at me, I look at him. We both start laughing. I said, boss. He said, what, Brad, you've got nothing to lose. You got, he said, how did you feel? I said, it doesn't seem any different. So we drive back to London. I kind of go home. I go to bed, like, I watch TV. Well, go to bed. I get up the next morning quite early, go to the toilet. And then all of a sudden I thought, oh, my God, feels pain-free. So I bend down, I touch my toes. I went, oh, my. So I put my kit on. I, jo- I lived in Knightsbridge, and I jogged to Hyde Park. And I started to do a series of jumps, runs, high knee raises, checking, turning, dropping down the floor, getting up, sprinting, and I can't wait to get home. And I run home about at nine o'clock, and I phoned the physio. I said, you never guess what, I swear to you, I feel great. Come in early, 12 o'clock, let me have a test. So he does the physio's test on the side of the pitch, the same things I've done. And he said, listen, Mark, sometimes these things can happen. I said, I, I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. So anyway, he phones the manager. He said, I've just given Brad a fitness test and that. He said, he's okay. So Copper like laughs a little bit and then he gets in and I, and me, this is Saturday lunchtime. So I don't think anyone knows what's happened. So Steve goes, hi everybody. All right. Um, I'm going to make one, one change to the team. Bright's coming back in the team. And I think it's Eddie McGoldrick shouts, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. And everyone starts laughing. And you obviously know I've been to see all the strength at night. And, and I, I was kind of, a, I was annoyed because I didn't want to laugh along. And I just, I just stood up and started getting changed and ignored everybody. And then we won 1 0. I scored the goal. And then I was that, for the rest of the season. The, uh, that that semi final, um, amazing game. You're 1 0 down, you're 2 1 up, you're 3 2 down, 3 3, oh, extra oh, time. Yeah. And oh, then Pardew's, Pardew's late goal. Yeah. Uh, incredible time. drama. Steve, yeah, we sit down, we sit down, and Steve says, right, you've got to seize your moment. This is your moment. You're younger, you're fitter, you've got more desire. They've won everything. They've won all the big trophies. You've got to take advantage. You know, work on what we've been working on, the set pieces and everything, and, and go and take advantage. So then we have this corner, what we have, Andy Gray, great delivery, Andy Thorne at the near post, and then we have two or three people attacking it, one at the far post, one just after, one at the middle, which is me. Pard comes around the back post, and um, Andy clips it, Thorny touches it, I don't get there. Pards comes around the back post. Bang. I cannot explain to you the feeling. You feel like something, you just like, you feel like you've exploded as a person. You know it's not over, but you know it's, you've got a great chance now. And he runs to the crowd. We all pile in. And then you've got to compose yourself and then carry on. And then at the final whistle, I mean, you don't know how you feel. You don't know whether to go and shake someone's hand, drop on your knees, look up to the skies. And it's a combination of everything because this team, a few months earlier, beat us 9-0. This team was the best team in England. This team is the Man City now. They, they won the league in 1990. They were the best team. So we'd beaten the best team. And Andy Gray come running off, jumped on me, looked at me, grabbed me by the, by the face and said, we're going to play in the FA Cup final. And, 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 and it took ages for it to sink in. Ages. We're just... Was just a, 
for everybody who wins a semi-final, the 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 joy is increased if the if if it's tighter. If you win three nil or whatever, you obviously celebrate and you go to the final. If you win two one, it's a last minute goal. Trust me, you're like we are. You run around the pitch like lunatics. And um, yeah, it was a was a great moment. It was it was. The, the, I think you've got a handful of moments in your in your life, in your life. What you can say, this 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 and this. They are the highlights of my life. So that was, at that stage, I hadn't got any kids or anything. It was the best day of my life. The, the FA Cup back then was completely different uh, to how it's perceived these days. Uh, and it all begins in, in the build-up. You know, you have the players' pool. Uh, you have the uh, agents getting on board to invite you down to do the cup final songs. And you're doing Gladys all over, uh, the Dave Clark yeah. Five. Uh, which is still around. I dug it up yesterday, and I'm yeah, going to be playing. Yeah. I'm going to be playing that in to this uh, this podcast oh, show. Yeah. By the way, that's Everybody going to be will. on. <laughs> and then the Everybody cup final, will. the cup final, yeah. all day TV. You you describe your drive to Wembley, the changing rooms, the telegrams, and then the walk. Yeah, the walk. It was the old Wembley. So you come out behind the goal, and then there's these there's these. Um, excuse me. You come out behind the goal and then there's these boards going across the the sand and the boards go across the sand and then you go onto the back of the pitch and you walk diagonally to the halfway line and you line up. They talk you through everything because obviously you're going to meet the, the, the Duke of... Duke of what? Duke of... Duke of, Duke of Kent, isn't it? Duke of I'm Kent. Gonna... Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, it, yeah, I'm sure it is. So they say you're going to meet the Duke of Kent and everything. So they tell you about protocols. Don't try and embarrass the royal family. It's just a shake of the hand, the bow of the head, slight bow of the head. Blah, 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 blah. It's all that sort of thing, right? So they said, obviously, only the 11 players who are playing, starting the game, can walk across. Uh, Ian Wright. Walk round. <laughs> and Ian Wright says, are you mad? I've waited. I've watched this game as far back as I can remember. The FA Cup final is the one final that we dreamed of playing in. And now you want me to walk around the pitch with the subs and go and sit on the bench? No chance. No I'm walking across that pitch. I'm standing in line to shake hands. And he did. So it's, 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 he's dreamt of that moment. He's dreamt of it. There's no way he's not doing it. So we walk across and then it's, it's just everything you've dreamt of. You look across and you see them. You see um, the Man United players and you think, you know what, we've beat Liverpool. We've beat Liverpool. They're the best team. Right. If we, we've got to produce our best, but we've got nothing to fear. And... Um, and well, yeah, what, a, so, what a start you had. O'Reilly's header give you, gave you the lead. Okay. Robson won one. Hughes made it 2-1. Yeah. Then Ian Wright okay. is into the game and produces what John Motson, the legendary no, commentator, said with a touch of the Ricky Villiers. Uh, and well, then that goal, the final goal, with uh, the Salako cross and Wright sliding in yeah, with the volley on the far post. Amazing. I thought we'd done it. I thought we'd done it, honestly. I mean, he come, Steve had to make a big decision before the game and he had to say, Ian, you're on the bench. Obviously, he cried his eyes out and everything on the Friday. Um, but then he, he, he manned up for the, for the team. He, he came out and we could all see he'd been crying because the manager had to say to him, look, I'm going to put you on the bench tomorrow, but I promise you, 1 million percent, I'll put you on. Win, lose or draw anything, you're getting on. You deserve it. You've earned it. And so Ian wanted to start. And he worked really hard to stick, to get back fit. Two broken legs. He went to see Olga as well. He went to see her. So, um, yeah, so the manager put him on. And I think it was Nigel Martin 
kick, knee flick, righty on the end of it, come inside Pally, slotted. And then Slarko, deep cross over everyone, right at the far post, side foot in. That was that, oh my goodness, we're, right, we're going to win the FA Cup. And I allowed myself to dream. We were, were running around and I thought, I'm, I'm going to have a picture of me with the cup on my head in my, in my photo album forever, ever. Like, and you're just running around, just trying to, how, ref, how long, how long? And then Mark Hughes scores. To, I mean, then it's extra time. Then we, then we, then there's a replay, a replay. I mean, crying out loud. If it had gone to penalties on the day, we'd have, we'd have taken our chance. Like now, take your chances on penalties. Anything can happen. But it went to a replay, and it always favours the better team. They work, they've worked you out a little bit better. And um, yeah, the magic just didn't appear in the second game. It was a shame, really. But was part of our own faults. I think we went for the aggressive style. They changed, they dropped Jim Leighton and put um, Les Seeley. Les Seeley was in goals, so our, our thing was to bombard the box because Jim Leighton, we thought, was pulling crosses. Um, yeah, it never materialised. So anyway, yeah, we didn't win the, the, the second game, the replay. Um, but still, Tim, remains two of the best days. You, the build-up and everything's great, and then you come out, you walk out, and, you, and everything, everything's about it. It's just magical. But you came, the, the following season, brilliant season, finished uh, higher than you'd ever done before, uh, in third place, yeah. the best season Palace had ever had. You won the, the full Members' Cup, the ZDS. Yeah. Then, yeah. then everything's going well. You get this, uh, you get a letter at your club from somebody that you hadn't heard from from a long, long time. Yeah, that was, um, that was my dad. He, he decided to write the letter and to... Um, hello son, this is your dad here. I can't tell you how proud I am of you. Da, 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 da. And obviously he knocks you over with a feather. Show it to I think it was Tony Finnegan who said, Well, it's your dad, Mark, you know, so in the end, you know, and photocopy it, send the copy to my sister and brother. They can't believe it. So um just one of those things. Um, I reply to him, he replies back and then I kind of don't want to really I just kind of generically say have you written to any of the others? To Marie, to, to, to Phil, to, to Shana Moy? You know, have you written to any of them? No, you've written to me because I'm in the limelight. That's it, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we like, I don't know how long it was later. So I think we, my sister and me are sitting having dinner and decide to, um, she asked me, do, you know, do you, do you ever wonder what he looks like? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, I can still remember where he lives and I can still recite the, the address right now. It's just Im embedded. And we drive up to Burnley and go and see him. It was, um, well, you can imagine, he's shocked to see us. Um, my sister said he was athletic. He played tennis and cricket. Um, he was tall, blah, blah, blah. So we knock on the door. He answers the door, said, are you Eddie? He said, who are you? Are you, are you Mark? Is this my son? And all that sort of thing. So um, he starts crying. We go in and he gets himself together. He's his he's wife. Said he's a Seventh Day Evangelist. He's prayed for this day. This is the day that you know his prayers are answered. And then he says, "Mark, tell me who's this charming lady you have with you? Is it, is it your uh, your girlfriend?" And um, she looks at him and says, "I'm your oldest daughter, Marie." So he starts crying again. So that takes a bit of time. And then he just, you know, rather than say, "You know what? Let me apologise. I've made mistakes here. I, I, I haven't done what I should have done. I haven't been a good dad." But he just makes excuses excuse after excuse after excuse don't want to go into much detail but mm, you know yeah, 55 yeah. minutes later I look I look at my sister and say are you ready she says yeah and we stand up and he, he wants me to stay and meet the neighbours and all that sort of thing and 
um, I just I just want to go. So we say our goodbyes. He said, will you stay in touch? I said, no. I've satisfied my curiosity. Don't particularly think he was a nice person, the way he spoke to his, his wife at the time. Um, so we get in the car. We don't speak for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then I look at her, and she's just looking straight out the window. Not, I don't know, maybe, like me, just in a bit of shock, really. Wow, is that, is, is that our dad? I mean, and then I said to her, I thought you said he was tall. And she said, when you're four years old, Mark, everyone's tall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is an icebreaker. What a great, that is a great line. But Trevor is then back onto the football. Trevor then takes you up to Sheffield Wednesday. Good team. Uh, Hurst, Anderson, Wilson, Waddle, uh, Sheridan, Woods. Uh, Waddle, you yeah. described as being the greatest player, the best player uh, that you ever played with throughout your career. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, simply. Just um, 1992, we come back from Marseille. They played in a great team at Marseille. They won the league and everything and got to the Champions League final. Um, and then he comes, Trevor Francis said, Mark, I've got, he said, I've got Chris Waddle. I mean, Mark, you'll score loads of goals with him. Um, David Hurst, who I'd always admired from when he was at Barnsley, right? And we used to compare ourselves to him with goals. Um, like he said, Johnny Hawks. Um, we had some youngsters in Chris Bart Williams, um, Gordon Watson, uh, Ryan Jones, um, Graham Hyde, and then we had some great seniors with Viv, Nigel Pearson, Peter Shirtliff, um, Nigel Worthington, Roland Nielsen, Chris Woods, Carlton. I mean, we had a proper, proper squad. And Steve Coppel said to me, I, I don't want to let you go, but if you want to go, I won't stand in your way. I happen to think they've got a great team and you could be the the, 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 the missing piece of the jigsaw for them, you know, because you're consistent and that, so it's up to you. So um, I decided, like, right of the year before me, that the time was, was right for me to to move on. And um, I'll never forget, I'm driving the motorway and I thought, I'll better phone right his mum, you know, because I'm kind of like I'm signed and it's been on the news and that, and I've come to London, come back, I've got like a, a no, uh, like a, a few days close and things. I'm heading back up like on the Thursday. We're travelling to Nottingham on the Friday. I'm making my debut and I'm coming back to London. So I just I'm driving up to to go back to Sheffield, and I phone right his mum, and she um, she starts on the phone. She said Ian's gone to Arsenal. You've left now. I won't see you. You'll, you'll forget me. And, and she starts crying, and I start crying, and we're driving down the driving the motorway, thinking I've made a mistake and. I mean, it was, it was like terrible, terrible. But, uh, you know, obviously you don't lose touch with people like that. She's um, an incredible person. So, yeah, I, I get to Sheffield and and, it's a, and we have an amazing season. Oh, we play at Wembley six, yeah. six times. We we play in the FA Cup, the FA Cup. We play the, 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 the League Cup. Unfortunately for us, we played Arsenal. And it was George Graham's Arsenal. And anyone who was around at the time would know that George Graham's Arsenal's are not easy to play against. They're very, very difficult. So, um, in both finals. What, what went through uh, your mind when Paul Warhurst refused to play unless he was played as a striker and then the delegation yes. turned up to ask you if you'd like yeah. to be a central defender? <laughs> a marquee and right. Can you imagine? We're... we're we're at Bisham Abbey, where it was, I think it was the England training base at the time. It's a beautiful place. The River Thames is running through it, and it's got. And we're sitting. It's a beautiful day. It's, it's May. 
the day, the next day, we're playing in the FA Cup final. I mean, it's every player's dream. I don't care if you if you play in the Champions final, you want to play in the FA Cup final. And um, Trevor says that you know, I've got to tell Paul Lewis, I'm going to start you and David up front. You've got a great record when you start together, and he's got to play at the centre back. And I said, yeah, but Trevor's a centre back, so it doesn't, you know, you know, you understand it. So he he just does that thing of saying, I I want to be considered a striker. I want to be considered a striker, and um, I, if I'm not playing up front, I'm, I'm not playing. And then the, the, the session doesn't even get going because everyone now is walking over to, to, to speak to him, to, to try and convince him to play, and training doesn't begin. And so the players come back and say, right, do you think you could play centre-back and Mark Wright because no one knows him better than you? And this, that, to which I just... I think at that stage I just went right. I don't want to swear, but are you taking this? You want me, a centre forward who's only ever been a centre forward all his life, to now in the biggest game of my life, playing a position I've never played in against someone who will absolutely turn me inside out, and you want me to play there so a centre back who can compete with him can play in my position up front? No. I'm playing up front. He's playing centre-back. If he doesn't want to play centre-back, don't play. I'm going mad. Everybody's trying to calm everybody down. I can't believe it. Hurst is just saying, right, leave it. Just don't leave it. Leave it. Leave it. Trevor's the manager. Trevor can deal with it. And I can't believe they've asked me. I was fuming. I was fuming because I said to him, I mean, we, we, we speak. We see each other now. I said to him, listen, don't speak to me unless you're calling for the ball. Don't want any other chat outside of that. Don't speak to me. I'm not interested in anything you've got to say because he'd annoy me so much and everyone knew what I was like as well but you know so I, I just thought it was a selfish act selfish act you know I, I could understand it listen when Eastie was out Trevor said to me I mean these this, these, are the, these are the managers who, are, who see something differently right so Neil Warnock's done it all the managers have done it what, Stuart Pearce did it didn't they put David James up front or something you see <laughs> something right and and like Neil Warnock who was it Danny Butterfield or something played well in training in a five-a-side up front. And he said, I'm going to play up front tomorrow in this cup game. He scored a hat-trick, right? <laughs> Danny Butterfield, the right-back, scored a hat-trick for Palace. So, so, so Paul Morrison played, he's a good finisher. He's got good technique, right? So he's just one of those defenders who strikes the ball really well with both feet, and he's quick. So Trevor goes to me, Mark, I'm going to play Paul Morris up front tomorrow with you. Like, this was in the league. And I went, really? He goes, yeah, he's, he's a good finisher, Mark. He, he'll run off you. You can do, hold it up and everything. He'll run him behind. So he scored like 16 goals in that season. And I think he got a call up for England as well. So yeah, at yeah. the end of the season, when it culminated in the, 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 the FA Cup, he wanted to play up front. So I just thought it was wrong for the players to come to me and ask me to consider to play anywhere else but where I'm good. You know, trying to write it, imagine lining up on... A, like, he'd look at me and go, what's he doing? At the kickoff, And then he'd say, give me the ball, please. Guy, give me the ball. He'd roast me. So anyway, brilliant. Listen, there's a couple of events. Yeah, now there's a couple of events before it, it, we 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 close it off. Um, David Pleat came in to to coach. You didn't didn't see eye to eye with him, but there was, of course, the, there was one great moment during his reign, which is when you decided to get on a plane to go to Vegas and and get married. Oh, and yeah, yeah, we, we, it was international break. They they came in. And so, obviously, there's a girl in uh, London called Jane Filler. She worked for Virgin. And she used to look after the Virgin Lounge at Palace. 
and then she kind of just like she just she just became great friends with all the players everyone loved her and she, I, I she sourced everything for me what i need what I, you know where to go da, 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 book the flights for me she's the only person who knew there was my 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 ex-wife me and jane and she never said anything to anybody so on the way back i got delayed I got delayed, and then I got back into Heathrow late, and I just knew from Heathrow to Sheffield, I'm not driving like a lunatic. I'm not going to make it. I didn't have enough time. I phoned the secretary said, I've been on a plane. I'm delayed. I've been delayed. I'm going I'm to have to miss training. I'm not going to get there till lunchtime. It's going to be too late. So I'll see you, like, on the Tuesday. So I went in on the Tuesday, and David said, uh, um, what, what happened was I told one of, the, one of the coaches that I'd been to Paris or something, and... And he obviously told David, and David said, "Oh, Mark, we, you know, where were you at the weekend?" I said, "Oh, just sorry, David, my fault. Got plane delayed. Blah 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 blah." Okay, a friend of mine who was in Paris said he thought he saw you, so I said, "No, David, I haven't told." <laughs> and then he said, "Are you sure? Are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, David. I'm sure." But obviously, I knew I told, I couldn't trust. So um, he said, "Right, if you, um, I'm going to find you, but if you want to tell me where you were, then I'll reduce the fine." So I was thinking, right, one of the greatest moments of my life. I've got to share with someone who doesn't rate me, thinks I'm over the hill and wants to get me out of the club. And why would I do that? I'll take the fine on the chin. So um, I, I never actually ended up telling him. So, um, you know, I think it was always a source of annoyance for him. And years later, he must have asked you how many times? It's, it's almost a bit of a, an oh, ongoing joke. He continues yeah. to ask you and you continue yeah. never yeah, to yeah, tell him. Yeah, yeah. because I said to him, I paid for the privilege. I paid, I paid a week's wage. I think it might be two weeks, but I can't remember if it was a week or two. It's in, it in the book. But I just said to me, you pay for that privilege, Dave. I'm not going to tell you now. I suppose if he reads the book, he'll know that, you know, I, I went to, to Vegas and we did one of those weddings where, you know, you you just, you arrive, you take your all your details, all your, you know, your, your passport, et cetera, to the register office, you get a certificate and then you can go to any chapel you want. We went to a little chapel, I think it's Silver Bell. And just... Um, Unbelievable, unbelievable! Just the two of us, and a, and a witness, a guy from England who now lives there, and witnessed it for us, and then took some pictures, went back to the the Mirage Hotel, changed some money, played the tables, went to bed, got up, did some shopping, flew back to LA. I was in LA doing some recording, doing some uh, an album, I think, and then um, I had to come back to England, so nobody knew. We took the rings off, put them back in the boxes. And um, and kept it quiet for five months, <laughs> and then we had to somebody, somebody, somewhere, somehow, got got a hold of the certificate, I think, or something. And the paper said, right, we know you got married, and then management didn't even know, so we had to say yes. And then we had a day to ring everybody because they were going to they were going to do this this article, and we had to. We, we had a day, we had to tell everyone, they went mad, everyone went mad, her friends went mad, her parents went mad, my gran went mad. So we had to have a blessing. We had, I just said to her, just tell everyone we're having a blessing this summer. We'll, we'll arrange one. So we just got away with it by saying we're having a blessing. I mean, my brother, nobody could believe it. Five months ago, we got married, didn't say anything, so anyway. But there was one last so, hurrah, wasn't there, at, uh, at Charlton with, uh, with Curbs. Yeah. I mean, you got, you got to play yeah. against... Uh, uh, Sunderland yeah. wasn't it in the fun that was your seventh time at Wembley uh, do yeah. you still have the uh, do you still have the video of the day you took a video camera didn't you do you know what Tim I swear to you I videoed the day because when we did the FA Cup final everything happened so quickly and you miss things right so I did a video of the whole day I had a camcorder 
went down the coach, interviewed a couple of players in the changing room, out on the pitch. Um, and then, um, who was it? Um, oh, my goodness. One of the guys dropped the goals in for me from ITV. And I should know, David Moss. David yes, Moss from ITV yes. yeah, yeah. Dropped, dropped the goals in and action for me in the video when at when post-production. And so I gave everybody a copy of the video. They contacted me a couple of years ago from Charlton and said, Mark, have you got the video? And I said, I lost it in like the, the breakup, the, 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 the moving houses and everything. I lost it, but somebody will have a copy. Every player I asked either couldn't remember having it or said they couldn't find it. And I thought someone like Steve Brown would have it or Curbs or somebody. And they, they wanted a copy for the museum, you know, so you could change it to digital and play it, I suppose. And, and nobody can find a copy. And I definitely, I definitely made it one million percent. So I remember nicking Kevin Lisby's trousers out of his suit. And then on the day, he was like, oh, my God, I've left my trousers. They, you know, <laughs> you know, everyone's going, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? He goes, oh, I don't know. He goes, oh, no, I don't know what I've done. And then I, I come, brought them out and gave it to me. And he's gone, oh, Brian, what did you do that for? Um, yeah, but Richard Rufus grabbed the camera off me, started going around the changing room because he'd scored. I mean, you know, the scoring lots easy, Brian. We had some great footage. If one of the players has got it, I mean, you can get converted now. To, to, oh, to, easily. You know, to, to yeah, like yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, I've, I've had a few things done, but I just can't. I, I said to my ex-wife, can you have a look? There'll be a video and it will say Charlton, like um, playoff final on it. So she's like, I don't know, I've got video. I don't, I don't know where they'll be. So I don't know. I, I know I used to keep things like that. And I couldn't find the original small video from the camcorder either. So the videos, one of the players should have it. I gave everybody a copy. And players say, I don't remember having it. And I said, but I gave everyone a copy. So I recorded the day for, for prosperity, for, you know, for everybody to, to enjoy, because it ended up being our day. And no one can bloody find it. And the last thing we'll mention today is a uh, word for the uh, the greatest moment you describe in your life, which had nothing to do with football at all, really, did it? Uh, it was the, the birth of your son. Isaiah. Unbelievable. I, I don't know anybody who can put the birth of your kid before an event <laughs> when somebody says, I was at the semi-final, Mark. I was at the playoff game. It was the best day of my life. And you go, have you got a kid? Yeah, how can it be the best day of your life? It was just, my, my, my ex-wife and me were on holiday and um, she said to me, do you know when we start the family, I, I've got a name for a boy. So I don't care. If we have a girl, you can choose the name. But if we have a boy, I've got to choose the name. And I said, why? She goes, because I've always liked a name and, I've, and, and that's the name I want. And I said, okay, well, I happen to have a name for a boy as well. So unfortunately, we're going to have to flick a coin or something. She went, oh no. She goes, what's your name? I said, Isaiah. So she jumped off the bed and ran around the room. She goes, Mark, I'm shaking. Are you kidding me? And um, I said, no, what's yours? She said, Isaiah. So oh, we, did, we, we didn't go for the, when we went for the scans, the, obviously the consultant said, would you like to know? And we said, no, we'll go for the surprise. And then on the day when he was born, obviously pull out a boy. We both burst out crying. And, called him obviously so, you know there's um amazing all the names you could choose in the world and you couldn't believe it so 
that was meant to be. So yeah. And, and, and you know what, even now, he's 19, he's got a copy of the book. I've asked him if he's had a look at it, he said no. I said, okay. Then I asked him again, have you had a look at it? No. I asked him again, <laughs> no. I said, all right, well, in your own time, mate. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it was uh, it was a great story, and I, I read it all from uh, front to back uh, yesterday. And it's uh, it's it's an uplifting tale, you know, for somebody that so. began began with with literally nothing. And I'm not talking about money; we're talking about family. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. mother and father. Got, to use all of that in a positive way, you know, is uh, is an inspiration for others. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? You, you've known me quite a while now, and I'm, my, I'm a glass half full man. I try and make the best of every situation. Like, there's lots of stuff in the book, obviously, what you haven't got time to talk about. I mean, we've done yeah, such yeah. a long time now. There's, you just you just have to say, do you know what? Everything happens for a reason. I'm going to bounce back from this. I'll move on. Was at the BBC for 14 years. I'll get told over a baguette and a, and a pret and a cup of coffee. We haven't got any work for you. Okay, thanks a lot. Bloody That's great. You thanks you got that. a baguette. Telling me the day before a baguette, yeah. So <laughs> so you, but you know what? I, I don't want to sit there and be bitter. Off you go. Move on. Get some more work. Get, go go and try and make the best of what you've got. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. It's not the book hasn't been done for that. It's just a journey. It's a different person's journey. Uh, when people tweet about it, some guy says, "I had it hard as well. I have three jobs. I had this, that, and the other." Yeah, but it, I'm just talking about my journey. I'm not. It's not a competition. Yeah. You had the hardest upbringing. It's just my journey. It's my time to tell my story, and then ho hopefully, if people read it, they enjoy it. Mark, it's been fantastic. Thank, thank, thank you, mate. Honestly, I, I know you've read the book. I can tell. I can absolutely <laughs> tell. You just touched on subjects that nobody else has touched on. Well, my thanks to the always very accommodating, very entertaining Mark Bright talking about his book called My Story. And it is a story that's worth your time to read as well. It's a good book. It's priced $16.99 and is available from all the usual outlets. Now, Christmas is one of the busiest times of the year. New releases packing the shelves. So uh, what is out and what deserves your attention? Well, cricket, that is well represented this Christmas. Ben Stokes' book, On Fire. The story of England's summer to remember, of course, the first World Cup victory and that memorable Ashes series as well, all relived in this book. Henry Blofeld, the legendary cricket commentator and raconteur, offers up his A to Z, serving up the most important events of the last 50 years. And, of course, there will be plenty of amusing anecdotes along the way. There always is. And also worth a mention of just eight ninety nine, dollars uh, Peter Baxter's book, On the Boards with Blowers. You can listen to this uh, entertaining chat we had uh, last month with him. He was the Test Match special producer for 30 years before heading out on the road with Blowers on their two-man tour. Very, very amusing. Now, the Rugby World Cup, of course, has just concluded, and there's plenty of rugby-related books out and about at the moment. Pride and Passion, the autobiography of Warren Gatland, who in recent times led Wales, of course, to four Six Nations triumphs, three Grand Slams, and that uh, World Cup semi-final. Another of rugby's greatest coaches, of course, is Eddie Jones, who guided England to back-to-back -back Six Nations titles, including that first Grand Slam in years. It also, of course, chronicles England's recent run to the World Cup final. 
motorsports. Well, Jensen Button's How to Be an F1 Driver Still Doing Well. Uh, this talks about his 17-year career as an F1 driver and what it's like to live the life of an F1 driver. Jason Plato served up the opposite, how not to be a professional racing driver. Very amusing, this, from the man who's often referred to as the bad boy of motor racing. He's uh, produced, as you would expect, a raucous tale of motorsport and his own personal life. Football always well represented around this time of year. There's biographies and autobiographies of players past and present in plentiful supply. Mark Bright's book, of course, we've discussed already. Steve Perriman, a spur forever. The life story of Tottenham's record appearance holder who was with Spurs throughout the low times. Remember when they were relegated in the 70s and then the high points when they won back-to-back FA Cup finals and it that epic UEFA Cup final back in 1984 under Keith Birkinshaw. Very, very good book, this. And on to a player that he would have met a few times as well in his career, in the latter days of it, Robbie Fowler. His book is out. One of the greatest natural goal scorers of recent history. Remember, 183 goals for Liverpool. He seemed to be scoring every time he pulled on a red shirt, didn't he? Uh, Fernando Rickson, who recently sadly lost his battle with motor neurone disease after a six-year fight. His autobiography is out, written in conjunction with himself and author Vincent de Vries. Now keep an eye out for this as well, The Three Kings, which tells the story of three legendary coaches, Jock Steen, Bill Shankly and Matt Busby, all born within a 20-mile radius of each other who went on to achieve legendary status in the game. Uh, other books from the likes of Michael Owen, James Milner, Peter Crouch, Peps, Manchester City, Vincent Company, Lionel Messi, all weighing the shelves down in your local bookstore. And if you read and enjoyed Range by David Epstein, then James Kerr's book Legacy will also appeal. He goes into the heart of the All Blacks of New Zealand to unveil the 15 most powerful and practical lessons for leadership and business as he attempts to uncover the secrets of success, how to maintain it, and achieving and setting high standards. And just before we get to the U.S. bestsellers for this month, that leads us into this, which is a book that all football fans who were brought up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and indeed the 1990s will enjoy. It is called the Got Not Got Football Gift Book, Every Fan's Catalogue of Desires. And as we head towards Christmas and you uh, thumb through this delightful book, you'll be transported back to a time of... Subutio, Super Striker Football Monthly Magazine. Who remembers Betamax tapes? Fantasy Football, Danny Baker's own goals and gaffes. It's all here. Derek Hammond is the author. He's also here. Derek, uh, got not got, if I'm not mistaken, is a phrase that we used to use during break times and lunch times at school. It was a term that was used when we were doing swaps of our player cards. You know, got that. Not got that. Exactly, exactly. Yes, that's our origin story. If we were superheroes, that would be our origin story. So we have got this compendium of just about everything a football fan would ever have craved during the course of those eras. Where did you get the idea from? We've done a a series of books starting um, about eight years ago. Um, 
the first one was called Got Not Got, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, and that was runner-up in Football Book of the Year in 2012. Um, since then, we've done some themed books on, for example, kit and programmes, and we've done individual club books, but this is the first one that we've pu published as ourselves. And it's something that we've, we've always wanted to do. We've, we've split out the football stuff. Uh, the other books are about sort of nostalgic memories and things that have gone missing generally in football, like uh, mud. But yeah, that, that's we, we've done that now. That's been done to death. So we, we've we've moved on to the stuff, which is was has always really been at the heart of our love of. Um, you know, football sort of memorabilia, collectibles, nostalgia. It, it's always, it's always revolved around our collections. We've probably read about orange balls in the, in the, winter fixtures enough now. Um, so we've moved on to, Alan Sunderland and his wife and their enviable crockery collection and uh, yeah, everything really. I mean, I'm flicking through it um, even as we speak. If you, you might put a ring around these Jimmy Greaves LSD football boots from the 1960s. LSD, how 60s can you get? There's the games, the games. You've got oh, the, you've got the obvious, like Sabutio. But what I have to say is, you've got Super Striker in there, which was the, the real deal. Now the kids that came from the slightly richer households tended to have the Super Striker. Now this was uh, where you press the head of the of the player and it kicked the ball and the goalkeepers actually yeah. dived oh, i used to play that around michael tate's house well, i didn't have striker he must have been a rich kid from the right side of the tracks there was one in there that i didn't see that i do remember that we had it was called big league do you remember that by chad valley oh, uh, yeah. they were little they were little players and you pulled the foot back and there was a spring mechanism on the foot and the foot then, you know, bounced yeah, forward and it like, hit the ball. Was it, it was a bit like striker, did it look, it looked a bit But like it was 11 aside. I think it was 11 aside from what I said. Yes, um, we've done big league, Tim. We've done that previously in a Got Not Got book. We've, uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've covered that. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a copy of one of Excellent. the books. Excellent. Uh, yeah. The fashion, fashion was the other one that, uh, that I like because anybody that has got in their attic a pair of George Best striker boys' shoes uh, with oh, on the sole the picture, shoes, yeah. yeah, the picture of the player himself. Now, if you look at that and then go and have a look at a shoe designer by the name of Jeffrey West, who is quite famous, obviously down in Northampton Way, you'll see where he maybe got his inspiration from because he does these collections of uh, rock star collections with the image and the silhouette on the sole of the shoe, but you could get them for one ninety nine back in the day. Oh, yeah. Well, I actually remember these because um, they, were a, they were a football response to shoes called Clark's Commandos, uh, and they had... Um, so, say leopard prints or you know an animal prints, lion prints. You, there was a whole set, and you know we were quite used to seeing in the snow, uh, you know leopard tracks uh, at lawned 
infant and junior school <laughs> in uh, sunny Leicestershire. Um, so yeah, we, we, were, we were used to seeing leopard track, but when we saw George Best tracks, then, uh, well, that was literally enough to stop us in our tracks. If you look at the George Best memorabilia or some of it, you'll find that anything to do directly with football, it seemed to be his name was George Best, anything to do with fashion, uh, fitness, because you've got the, you know, you've got the fitness videos. It was always Georgie Best. Oh, yeah, Georgie Best. Yes, that E for B and Georgie Best. Yeah, in sort of popular culture, he became Georgie Best, didn't he? That, that's actually my favourite thing in the book you just mentioned, the George Best Keep Fit LP, um, which he did in the, <laughs> in the 90s. Who was his girlfriend? Um, Mary Stavin or Stavis? She was Swedish, I don't know. Where did it all go wrong? A few other things in there, which I'm not sure whether the clubs do these days, but they did back in the 70s and the 80s. And I'm surprised. Club-branded trainers and club-branded drink, in particular, well, beer, when you consider the rock and roll, I mean, every rock band worth its salt these days is producing its own uh, whiskey, bourbon, beer. I'm surprised that football clubs these days haven't latched onto this. Uh, well, uh, yes, we we have got some, um, you know, official branded. Uh, the, the, quite a few did it. Liverpool, Man U, Everton. Uh, we've got the Liverpool Premium Lager, and there's a lovely story about it. That it was it was banned just a few days after it came out because the the Daily Mail ran a sort of shock horror campaign. The the, the book does show how you know f uh, football and marketing uh, and the sort of use of players has changed because the football is still sponsored by beer companies but you rarely see a well, never see a player with beer in his hand do you um it's it's sort of distanced so the um yeah the the man U, um, the man U lager was uh, well banned just taken off the market um, very soon afterwards because um, with each can that you bought if you kept the um ring pull um you could you could save them all up and uh, if you, um, when you had about 300, I think it was, might have been 320, um, you could then send them in and redeem them for a ticket to the to the Stratford end, which then cost, uh, I think, £1.60. So they were sort of half P each. Uh, right, I've got them. this. I've got it here. Right, this is what it says. Well, let me tell you, this is quite staggering, actually. So this is what football fans who were drinking the, the club beer had to do. Uh, by collecting, it says here, Red Devil Ring Pulls, fans could claim free gifts. Get this, collect 640 and you could get in to Old Trafford for free instead of paying £3.20. I mean, it doesn't take Einstein to work out. Work out how much 620 cans of that cost per free ticket. I know, isn't that fantastic? You know, they sort of encourage him to drink 620 cans of lager before going to football. But, um, oh, well, great days. Great days indeed. I can tell you that you'll spend many a happy hour just thumbing through this book, reliving your childhood and your teenage years 
The book is called The Got Not Got Football Gift Book and it's priced £16 and it is available from all good booksellers. And just before we finish, time to have a quick look at the best-selling books in the USA at the moment, courtesy of Barnes & Noble. In the top ten, it's Into the Wild by John Krakauer. And number nine, Harvey Pennick's Little Red Book is Lessons and Teachings from a Lifetime in Golf. That is the 20th anniversary edition of that book, by the way. Life is Magic is at number eight. And Curveball at number seven, How I Discovered True Fulfillment. After Chasing Fortune and Fame, this is by Barry Zito. Twelve years ago, Zito signed a seven-year, $126 million contract with the San Francisco Giants. He was at the top of his game. He had it all, but one thing. Apparently, he was miserable. At number six, the handy box of knots. Useful knots for every situation, inside and out. At number four, it is Twelve Mighty Orphans. This, the inspiring true story of the mighty mites who ruled Texas football. This is going back a good over 100 years, mind you now. At number three, Mayor Kane. Not Harry. It's My Life in Wrestling and Politics by Glenn Jacobs. At number two, classic story, this, Go Like Hell, Ford versus Ferrari and the battle for speed and glory at Le Mans. And at number one, it is The Making of a Miracle, the untold story from the captain of the 1980 gold medal winning US Olympic hockey team. Uh, for those of you who were fans or watched the Winter Olympic Games, you'll remember this. It was said to be the greatest underdog sports story, American underdog sports story, that is, of all time. And it was about the team of college kids and unsigned amateurs who were guided by the then legendary coach, Herb Brooks, who took on and beat the then mighty Soviet Union team at the Lake Placid Olympic Games to take the gold medal. And that just about wraps it up then for today in this uh, rather extended show this month. Hope you enjoyed the interview and the conversation we had with Mark Bright and indeed Derek Hammond. Uh, we will be back again next month with a roundup of what's going on in the sports literature world. And don't forget, you can listen to all of the previous episodes of this podcast over at the website, which is up and running now. It's at www talkingsportsbooks.com and do let us know if you've got any views or opinions you can contact us from there as well in the meantime until next time from me tim cable bye-bye